0: Hello and welcome back to the From the Clubhouse podcast. If we were proper, Steve, we'd be describing this as season two, wouldn't we?
1: Well, we're not proper though, are we? So, we've not been lazy, I would say that. We've had this sort of brief hiatus, which has been enforced by...
0: Basically, ridiculous diaries culminating in last week at the Open. You will have heard from us last week at the Open. We did an Open special from the Clubhouse podcast. But it's kind of not really our thing, is it? Tour, but not really. It's not really our bag. More about the grassroots game. More about club golf in its finest form.
1: Um, We are going to be slightly open-inspired today, aren't we? Yes, I suppose we are. I did feel deeply uncomfortable Doing a from the clubhouse podcast from the Open Media Centre, it seemed in some way wrong. Maybe we should have gone. To, we should have demanded to go into the Royal Liverpool Clubhouse. It would have felt better if we'd been surrounded by all the trophies. I don't, I don't. I don't. think we've got enough pull to get in there. Although we did get in there during the week, didn't we? Both of us. In where? In the role in the Royal Liverpool Clubhouse. You had a pint in there. Speak for yourself, mate. I didn't get in there. I thought. I, I thought you got in there before the AGW dinner.
0: No. I mean, if I did,
1: I've forgotten. Uh, which is always well, possible. I did. I did get in there. It it was used as a as, it was used as a venue for which to change for the festivities of the evening. I should say to people that the AGW is the Association of Golf Riders, and they have a very grand dinner on the Tuesday of um, every Open, and it's it is a pleasant experience, isn't it? It's a, it's a really good do. But anyway, um, that aside, the reason I mention that is because. Um, they very kindly at the club afforded us the opportunity to go and change, and get quick shower before, before the dinner. So you were able to have a wander around the clubhouse on Open Week, which was pretty special with all the trophies up there and John Ball and, you know, and so on. The whole history of the club and it was very busy. I, I thought like the clubhouse would be kind of be like R&A people and someone and their dog in there, but it was absolutely jammed.
0: There's quite a bit to dig into, isn't there? Um I was gonna ask you about you, how your open week was. Um it's interesting that you mentioned the crowd. There's a, there's a few things I want to touch on. It's a real mixed bag of a crowd, wasn't it?
1: I think you're putting that kindly. Um there was some there was some very uh there was some there was some Americanisms there. Um, and I don't mean Americans, there were plenty of Americans there, but what I mean by Americanisms is the kind of noises that you would hear at a PGA Tour event. I didn't think I'd ever get to the stage where I'd hear mashed potato get in the hole and various other obscenities um, shouted with every shot, but it was it was just commonplace. It was quite an amusing one with Minwoo Lee um, where the <laughs> Where the crowd just started going "woo hoo" at him, and then it ca- it just it just carried on for like two days. So every time he got near a ball or hit a shot, the crowd would just go "woo hoo." That that was there was some sort of comedic value to that. But in general, I didn't I didn't like a lot of the stuff that I heard. I didn't like the abuse of Brian Harmon. I heard a chunk of it. Um, I do feel you, you can pick me up for this, but I do feel there's something. Distinctly un-British about that in the way that we take our golf, in the way that we and the way that we watch our golf. There's this idea, isn't there, that we are kind of like very knowledgeable on this side of the pond, and um, you know we understand what we're talking. We, we 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 appreciate good shots. We don't just clap everything. We clap in the right places. So I thought for people to be booing Harmon and and saying some of the things to him that they did um, was pretty poor form, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I. Um... I think the, I think the crowd is fair enough from the club from the clubhouse fodder, right? As in, it, it, the crowd is full of club golfers. Um, so it's a really difficult thing because you desperate to desperate to not see yourself as a traditionalist, aren't you? You sort of everyone thinks they're kind of a modernizer and trying to drive the game forward. Um, I went with my kids on Sunday, and I'd quite like to have a chat about some of the aspects of that, but. Certainly, one of the things that I noticed watching golf in the week and then definitely on Sunday was that it just, it just, it felt more like a football crowd. Um, I don't like, I don't want alienate the the Northwest as an entity, but there there was just something about the, there was an edge to it on Sunday which you just don't expect um, to find at golf. Um, we spent a little bit of time on the first tee when Brian Harmon was teeing off. And he wasn't getting heckled necessarily. Like, I'm not sure that anything that was being said around us would be audible to the players. But he certainly wasn't being supported, shall we say. Um, and the kind of mood was kind of like, it was obviously raining, but the, the, the mood was kind of, it, it just felt like it could quite easily tip over into some heckling or some booing of someone they didn't necessarily want to win. Um,
1: it's just And it's just not the sort of thing that you expect to,
0: to see at golf, is it? Or here at golf?
1: I think um, I was going to mention the football match analogy. So it's interesting that you brought that up because um, it is perfectly. I mean, I don't do it personally. I, I'm just not that kind of person. But it does. It is an accepted part of practice, isn't it? Of football that you sort of lots of people boo the opposition, right? If there's a player that's done something a bit silly, or the crowd perceive them to have dived for something, and so on and so forth, then you know, that that player then becomes sort of the the target, doesn't it? The figure of fun, pantomime esque almost. I think in football it is really a, a pantomime as much as anything else. But because we're not used to it in golf, um, and there's the there's the there's the ch- the talk that Brian said obviously about when he missed when he bogeyed the fourth or the fifth, I think on the Saturday, and he, he's reported this where someone said to him, "You don't have the stones to win this." I mean, it's pretty. Come on, you know, I don't I don't, no, I, that I don't about- like that sort of stuff.
0: That was the general vibe, I thought, amongst the whole crowd was everyone was kind of desperate for him to bottle it and was sort of willing to play their part in him bottling it by either being unsupportive or being sort of vocally critical. It was just weird. Um, I just think that it's like life's like a broad church, isn't it? I take my kids to um, Ellen Road and I take my kids to Old Trafford all the time and they hear all sorts of things and they hear lots of swear words. They hear booing and jeering of the opposition and blah, 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 blah. And I'm fine with all that because um, it takes an entire village to uh, build a man or whatever the expression is. Like you need to expose your kids to lots of different stuff. So I was kind of taking them to golf to sort of show them there's a different way and there's a kind of re- there's respect for the applause, there's quiet when the players are hitting and all the rest of it. And it kind of gone, it kind of gone a little bit past that. I thought, um, have you taken your daughter to golf?
1: No, because I'm having a great deal of difficulty encouraging her into golf um she is more of a mother's frame of mind which is golf is silly daddy why would I want to do it <laughs> um
0: well she's got a point Fred. I
1: mean, I mean I am hoping that this changes but she's she's getting towards eight now and a sort of resistance is I keep telling her resistance is futile but but she's not she's not listening to this um so no no I mean and my next opportunity really is going to be Birkdale isn't it in 2026 because I think Troon's probably a bit far um, and then Pop, I'm, I'm certainly not taking it to Pop Rush, am I? So
0: yeah, I mean that is. so that is one of the reasons I took my kids. Like it's a couple of hours drive. Um, they're kind of they're six, they're seven and eight. Um, so possibly a bit young, I guess. Um, and it, it it was pretty interesting experience. Like we drove over really early on Sunday morning, and they were dead keen to go. Like we'd watched a bit of the golf on the couch on Saturday together, and they sort of got quite into it. And I have like tried to explain to them about various different golfers and their strengths and weaknesses and what, whatever whatever else. And it was interesting because you, you kind of say these things to your kids. You don't think it's going in. Uh, we got there. My eldest particularly was saying, oh, can we go and see Jordan Spieth? Because you said he's really good at putting. That must be quite an out-of-date comment. Um, <laughs> and the little bits like that where they... Um, where well, they'd obviously sort of tuned in to stuff that I'd been saying when we'd been sat watching golf at home, which was kind of like nice. And there was definitely an element that they knew that I was excited about taking them. So we sort of arrived with like a bit of a spring in our step. Um, and we've obviously got media badges and there's some privileges that come with that. You don't have to park in the main car park, you get bust in, blah, blah, blah. And um, I brought them into the media center to sort of show them what that looked like, which they were chronically underwhelmed by, which was a bit disappointing. Um, but the, the experience of taking them to watch the golf on a rainy day—it's it, a challenge, man. There's not a right lot to do inside.
1: You looked, um, you looked a bit bedraggled at various points as well. I did think when I saw um, when I saw your youngest in a pair of shorts, um, I did I did think that you were probably going to live to regret that choice by about two <laughs> o'clock.
0: <laughs> well, the reason we went home is because one of them was going blue. Um. I thought a few things like I think one of the things that's appealing to kids about going to the golf is you can move around. So that is like you can keep them moving. They want to be moving around. They can run around a bit. Um it's not the same as going and having to sit in the same seat at football or rugby or cricket or whatever. And um, so that's definitely to its advantage. I think they are genuinely excited about the fact that you can get really close to the players. Um I think there's something quite visceral about that. And we spent a bit of time on the first tee, which I think gave them some sort of context. They they couldn't really get in their heads that Brian Harmon was winning, but he wasn't even playing yet. Um, So we watched him tee off and I think they sort of began to understand the sort of rhythm of it all a bit more. And we finished our day off sat on the 18th, which was actually a pretty cool experience because you could see the shots coming in from whatever, 150, 200 yards away. um, And they started to sort of get the idea, I think. But yeah, I think that like... The, the game makes a lot of noise about wanting to encourage kids, but there's just so little for them to do. Like we went and did hook a duck in the HSBC tent about three times because he won a suite. So they were kind of like obsessed with that. And we spent a bit of time on the, um, the swing zone. So which is supported by the golf foundation and, and the PGA. And that's brilliant. And there, there are stuff for them to do, but there's like adults queuing up in front of you. It's like, <laughs> it should be kids only. Um, and I think, as a sport and event as you've just said there's very few things that come to your doorstep where you can take your kids to be inspired and come and like see what all the fuss is about so you really want them to have a good time like that's like a critical day in their kind of whether they fall in love with the game or not um, the fact it was chucking down obviously didn't help but i think the open could do more perhaps to kind of give kids something to do give provide some sort of more entertainment indoors on inclement days like that um like the shop was a hit with my kids because it was inside, um, but it was it was. I think it was overall a positive thing, and they came back buzzing. And my lad, uh, my youngest, loves his merch, so he spent all week sleeping in his new FJ uh, open branded top and his new cap. Um, so it's good.
1: Well, the mer- the merchandisers are happy anyway. I, I I think the point you make about the sort of kids v adults thing is quite interesting, and how they use. The swing zone and how they use the kind of, as you say, the HSBC Ten. I mean, I, I was struck at this open. I, I mean, my memory fails me, so I can't really remember back to two thousand and fourteen. Feels like a decade ago, which it was. Um, but I was surprised at how many of the audience, and it was it was quite pleasing actually. But then it might explain some of the vibe. I was surprised by how many of the the the, the audience, the crowd that I was listening to, knew very little about golf like knew very little about golf, didn't really know who some of these players were. I, I heard people asking other people about, you know, birdies and pars. And on the one hand, that is fantastic that the Open is so big that it's genuine. I mean, that is genuinely growing the game stuff, right? You know, you're getting people who are not like us necessarily, like avid club golfers, getting them to come and watch a top-class sporting event and getting, getting them to watch golf. But then I then I do wonder if I am allowed, as I did maybe 10 minutes ago, to complain about some of the things that the crowd did if you accept that a decent, possibly a decent proportion of the audience is not embedded in the sport in the way that perhaps you and I are. So, so what do you do? Do you just accept that and get on with it? And that's one of the prices of making something a bit more mass appeal or, you know, I don't know.
0: What golf normally does is hand out some rules. So maybe when everyone gets there, they should get a crib sheet about saying, can you do a two-handed clap, please?
1: Well, there's enough don'ts in golf though, isn't
0: there? Exactly,
1: yeah. Uh, anyway, it was cool. I mean, I, I thought it was a,
0: all open to brilliant, aren't they? There's been a lot of chat about this one being a dud or whatever that American journalist described it as. Um, and I guess like, it didn't have an exciting... De Newmont, but the 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 week as a whole, I thought was a, a massive success. The golf course is brilliant, isn't it? Like, yeah, absolutely it,
1: brilliant. Yeah, it's a massive privilege to play a small part in that. I mean, the weeks get long. I'm, I I can't remember the last time I had a day off. It was a while ago. Um, so I'm a bit battered now as we record this. But it's it's not something I would ever want to miss. Uh, it's something I'd always want to be part of because it is. I don't care what any of the other people say. It is the best tournament in golf like by far um it's everything about it's just fabulous it's just pure it's obviously it's massively commercialized now but it still feels like it sticks to what made it great it hasn't massively gone down the commercial route and yeah the the beer is expensive but 17 dollars. i mean we're still doing all right aren't we i think compared with the united states so there is there is a lot and i'm already looking forward to the next one i'm already looking forward to true um
0: yeah 100 so when um, have you played or not
1: no i i am playing tomorrow um and that'll be the first time i've played in if you take a hickory round out um um but i did play around with hickory clubs we can talk about that um it'll be the first time i've played properly i put us putting a score in for like a month i think We'll be about a Where month. Are you playing tomorrow. Easing world. Are you? I need to put half day in for that.
0: I'm sure you could probably, you probably got some time in lieu. <laughs> <laughs> you'd probably be alright. Um, so I haven't played since the first of July. Probably. Yeah, I think
1: I think I'm the second. Yeah.
0: Um, so it's proper feast or famine stuff by golf. So that week I played. 36 holes in the club champs on the Saturdays is working backwards. I played 36 holes for my uh, club on the Wednesday. I played in the international series qualifier for um, the agent tour event at Close House on the Tuesday. And I played an open qualifier on the Monday. So I played whatever that is. I can't really work it out. A lot of rounds anyway. I think I said last week that I basically shot 82 pretty much every time I've played. Um, the reason I mention this is because... Uh, I've now, yesterday when I was arranging to play golf with Hannah on Saturday, I flicked onto the England golf app to what my handicap was. Um, so I started the season, Steve, and I say the season, I mean like in April, uh, of plus 1.5. And today, my handicap is...
1: Are you asking me to guess? I'm asking you to guess. Uh, right? I'm going to say two. Two. Well, it's plus
0: 1.7. So, yeah. It's 1.7. Sorry, it's 1.7. Yeah. So it's, yeah, a two. it's a
1: two. Yeah. You must have had I... some absolute belter rounds coming off.
0: Well, yeah. So I basically, yeah, I have. Yeah. But I don't think I've been off two. I can't remember when the last time I was off two. Certainly, certainly not in my 30s and not in my 40s. Well, so like 20 years ago, basically.
1: I don't know how to approach what? this, because I've been complaining for quite some time about the, ri- the inexorable rise of my handicap, and you have been, how should I put this, blunt in telling me that that's just how I'm playing, and I should suck it what? up and get on with it. <laughs> I'm not denying it. It's just quite a
0: strange feeling, so I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to have to embrace it. What is the hard cap? Like, how far can you go? You can't go much further than that, can you?
1: You can go up um, a maximum of five strokes in My 12 months so you're you are anchored by your lowest by your sort of lowest handicap in the preceding your lowest handicap index in the preceding 12 months and you can't go any further than five shots and that and a lot of people get a lot of people get obsessed with this because they say well you can go up five shots it's actually it t- i could i could tell you this from personal experience it's pretty hard to go up five shots because you get capped by the soft cap and then you get capped by the hard cap so you've got to show some proper miserable form to get up the actual full five shots and it it does take it does take a little while what have I gone up 7.3 to 11.6 might be 11.7 now so I've gone up four and a bit but it's taken me now the best part of like two years maybe to do that like two years. I mean, all right. I haven't played a billion rounds, but I've played a decent amount of golf. I played twenty. I played twenty qualifiers last year. I've played twelve or thirteen this year. So I'm I'm thinking thirty three rounds to go up four and a bit. I'm not finished yet, obviously, but that's not. You can put in a lot. What a lot of people think with WHS is, oh, I'm just going to put in a score every day over four weeks. I'm going to get my twenty rounds, and I'm going to be awful because I'm cheating, and then I'm going to get my handicap up five shots. And I, I, I don't think that's the reality at all. I think it's think it's more difficult than people think
0: but it's a pretty interesting thing so i I mean i've submitted um let's say i've submitted eight cards this year and i think my handicap will have like seven of those would have been over the buffer zone on Mm. in old money so in the olden days i'd have gone up 0.7 but i have in fact gone up 3.2
1: yeah but i presume that's because those seven rounds have replaced a really good run of golf that you had maybe yeah, two yeah, years yeah. ago. That were that where you shot. Yeah. I th- didn't you shoot like sixty-seven at one point? Yeah, I had a load of sixties in in my record. Yeah, but the um,
0: sorry, I understand that. The point that I'm making is that we deal with all this disgruntlement about WHS, and it, it is a seismic shift, isn't it? So if you're someone who's playing crap at golf, as I am at the moment, and you're all and you're down on yourself already. The handicap system is really sticking the boot into you, isn't it? It's
1: it, is kind of what I've been saying for a while. Um, the, the, it, but the handicap chiefs will tell you that it all equals itself out over time. And as you keep putting in scores and it levels off. And eventually you'll find that level of where you are supposed to be. And, and in fairness to your golf, because you've not really been playing club medals. No, I mean, you've been playing top quality Amateur slash international golf off pretty long courses with back tees. I mean, yeah. you know, you're not you're not playing you're not playing a yellow tee medal at Old Woodley, are you?
0: No, I am playing the blue tee medal at Old Woodley on Saturday. So, it God, you're, really a, help either. you're
1: a glutton for punishment.
0: <laughs> um, it's just the way it falls, Steve. Uh, we should say this t- this podcast is sponsored by TaylorMade, and none of this is any slight on my TaylorMade golf equipment, by the way. I finally got myself the, the right shaft in my driver um, and I think this is going to be my turning point. Now I've got my stealth too that I can use, uh, it's all going to be all right again.
1: i tell you, I don't know if they'll appreciate me telling you this. I'm not sure I should say this for the, in front of our sponsors, but I'm going to anyway. When I got my um, clubs, my TaylorMade clubs, I was missing a wedge. Um, yeah. So I was I was missing like one wedge. I just didn't want to say anything. I mean, like I'm not that kind of person anyway. Who like rings up and goes, "Oi, you've given me some clubs. Thanks very much for that." But you haven't given me all of the clubs. Um, I just thought oh, it's fantastic that, that that they sent me some. And I, you know, do I really need a sort of 52 wedge? Probably not. I can get away with it. And then I got a package two weeks ago, completely out of the blue, with the wedge in it.
0: Right. So you now you now you've now got a full uh, set.
1: I've now got. A full set, and presumably they just didn't have the wedge in stock at the time. And then, but I I like the fact that they just remembered it. I think that's that's good customer service, isn't it? Yeah,
0: so maybe it's going to be a turning point for both our golfs, right? So, the meat and potatoes, as it were, of today's podcast is twofold, isn't it? And it is somewhat open inspired. So, we want to talk about bunkers. Uh, which was a hot topic last week I, we I, I am
1: was... I am quite hard line on this Tom I should say so um, I imagine lots of people disagree but there we are
0: we also want to talk about stroke and distance and is it all that
1: I have a talk. controversial view that lots of people won't agree with
0: and these are your topics aren't they so do you want to kick us off do you want to start yeah. with bunkers or stroke well, and distance
1: we'll start with bunkers because it's it's the easiest one, and whether bunkers should be hazards or shouldn't they? Um, I was I was kind of excited to watch a lot of players at Hoylake messing about in bunkers and making a pig's ear of them. It made them it made me feel like they were you know a bit like me. Um, and then obviously uh, they obviously messed about in bunkers so much that um, some people took fright. Some players got excited about this. Um, although when I was reading the post match press conferences. They didn't. They didn't. It's not like they were absolutely battering into them. But anyway, we got into the second day of the open, and the news that the bunkers were being altered, um, and the issue was that they'd been a flat surface, and that the balls on the first day weren't rolling back. They are an air, like the ball to roll back a little bit into the bunker from the face, and these weren't. And there were some pretty high-profile examples of players getting really stuck. I think the most obvious one was Rory Makaro in eighteen. I mean, he did make an absolutely amazing par. Um, but anyway, the bunkers were changed, the greenside bunkers in particular, so they would roll back a bit more into the face, and the the furor settled down. And I was just left feeling slightly disappointed about that, um, because I thought that I, I think that professional, personally, in the pro game, bunkers have become an afterthought you often hear players going, you know, when they hit a weird shot, get in the bunker because they know they'll get an ultra consistent lie. They're so great out of bunkers that they know they can get a load of spin. And I thought some of the, um, some of the row about it on the Thursday at the open was a bit misplaced. You know, let's take Rory McIlroy, for example, Rory McIlroy's ball on the 18th, his second shot buried in the face of the bunker, but no one forced him to take the second shot on. Um, you know, there was a risk and reward in that. And, he 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 thought that he hit a good shot, but he had a little bit of bad luck. It ran into the bunker and it ran into the face. Well that's that's what happens if you try and hit a wood or whatever it was from two sixty on a or two eighty on a on a 609 yard par five i thought the risk and the reward there was fair you know if you messed it up and you got it in the bunker there was going to be a chance that you were not going to be able to get it out in one go that that is the risk and reward of the whole so i I was slightly disappointed that the change was made and it does make me think you know what what are bunkers for if they're not going to produce that kind of tragedy that kind of calamity if 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 all the time when we go into a bunker, whether it be fairway or whether it be green, we expect the ball to roll back into the middle so we can just chop it out with a load of spin and, you know, never do anything more than a, never do anything more than a bogey or a power or a bogey, then then what is the point of having them? I mean, you know, from a maintenance point of view, they're an absolute pain in the backside. The sand in it costs a load of money. They're in there because they're, they're manufactured this as they're historically rabbit scrapings, aren't they? Or, Cow scrapings or sheep scrapings, whatever they are, that have been manufactured into something else. And if there's not going to be an element of jeopardy about them, because we're fixing them in such a way that the ball will always roll back a lot of the time, then what is what is the point of them? Do cow scrape? Not sure. Cows. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, it, probably they're probably rabbit scrapings anyway. But I just felt like I, I felt like it was. There was, there was a really good sense of what is going to happen if your ball goes into a bunker. And it makes people think, and it makes players be fearful, and it makes them go, ooh, I don't want to hit my ball in this bunker. And bunkers elsewhere, outside of these sort of major championships, have become just such a run-of-the-mill thing. I hit my ball in the bunker and then... And then that's it. That it's that it's kind of like they've been made redundant in the professional game because of the skill of players in getting out of it.
0: Do you think they're they're redundant in the amateur game?
1: Oh no, no, they're very they're very I mean, I, I pap myself when I go into one. I have no idea <laughs> if I'm gonna get the ball out or not. I have I, like after 30 years of playing golf, I've just got myself into a position where you know, I can actually get the ball out. But I mean, like, sand saves up and down, God, i would be like 1 in 20.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because the whole idea, of, like, good golf course architecture is trying to make the game a challenge for the better player uh, and more playable, easier for the handicapped golfer. And Bunker's basically the opposite of that, right,
1: in the main. in the, In the pro game, absolutely, yeah.
0: Yeah, as in, for a professional-skilled golfer... of bunkers are not really a challenge and they would be getting up and down a lot. Um, The the gripe with the bunkers at Hoylake early on in the week was that they'd effectively raked them flat, right? So the bottoms of the bunkers were flat.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what that does is um, if you're putting a ball in there at pace, which obviously you are with, for example, a fairway shot, for two hundred and sixty on the eighteenth hole, when you're putting the ball in, in at pace, they hit the face and they don't roll back. They basically just stay there. Um, so any shot that was hit with any kind of momentum on that sort of flat surface was um, was essentially just staying exactly where its impact point was. And, and to be fair to the RNA, and I, I don't think that that's what was intended because I was at um, I was at uh, an event the on the open eve where the um, bigger support team, which is all the volunteer greenkeepers that come from all across the country to help out at the open. And they essentially, one of them goes out with every group and they rake bunkers. One of the things that they were being told was that the RNA do like the ball to run back a little bit from the face. You rake the sand in a particular way so it might come back about 18 inches or so. And, And clearly that wasn't happening. But the fact that it wasn't happening doesn't mean that it's a bad thing in my personal opinion, I think that the the jeopardy there uh, was, for, uh, for a spectator at least, actually quite appealing. It was very interesting to watch. Now, there's a separate question of, is that fair in a major championship? But I was looking at some bigger um, stats about how many bunkers their team raked during the week, and I might be i'm doing this off the top of my head but i might be wrong but i think it was just 38 bunkers on the thursday compared with like 360 or something like that on the friday so you know a lot of fuss was being made about not a lot in my opinion and why was that fuss being made well probably because of the nature of the player who was coming unstuck in them I, I i i you know i think if this was some sort of like if, if it was some of the amateurs, for example, or some of the lesser known pros in inverted commas that were coming unstuck, probably wouldn't have heard too much about it because, but because Justin Thomas is chopping from one bunker to another and because Rory McIlroy hits one and it doesn't come out, there is like, I, I'm sure this is like this in every golf, but uh, every sport, but in golf, when there's something that's perceived to be sort of slightly unfair in this sense, it's especially at the top level, everyone seems to wet themselves. Yeah, and golf's
0: not supposed to be fair, is it?
1: Which is exactly the point Lee Westwood's been making about uh, about divots and, and, and stuff like that. Golf is not supposed to be fair. Yeah.
0: So are you telling me that they then sort of changed the sort of raking protocol to try and rake some, I guess, mounds up the sides, so the ball rolled more to the centre of the bunker?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I will, I'm will. i going to try and tell you exactly what they said the RNA said uh, we would like to advise you of an adjustment we have made to the way the bunkers are raked overnight yesterday afternoon the bunkers dried out more than we've seen in recent weeks and that left to more balls running straight up against the face than we would normally expect we've therefore raked all of the bunkers slightly differently to take the sand up one rivet on the face of the bunkers we routinely make rake bunkers flat at most open venues but decided this adjustment was appropriate in the light of the dry conditions which arose yesterday pretty um, amazing isn't it? many th- many things you can say about that one of which is it was forecast to absolutely bucket it down through most of the rest of the week so i mean dry conditions you win some you lose some but yeah yeah but
0: the, i guess without wanting to get too bogged down in this sort of minutiae of the rna's open protocols when it comes to raking bunkers the broader point you're making is that the way they had it on the thursday meant that bunkers were once again restored to being a hazard. And I guess as much as anything made people think because they would be thinking, well, I don't want to end up at the face of that bunker. I don't want to end up stood with one leg in and one leg out of that bunker. So maybe I won't take on the par five or maybe I will play to the middle of the green.
1: And, and look what happens if you don't go in the bunkers. Brian Harmon, I think, had gone in one bunker through 54 holes and went through two in the entirety of the tournament. You avoid the bunkers, you win the tournament. You have to put well, yeah. obviously, too. But, yeah. you know, it's the Tiger Woods thing at Hoylake, isn't it? You know, Tiger Woods took iron specifically because he knew the bunkers were a threat and he wanted to avoid them. So I think that when you remove that element of, of tragedy about it, it, it strategically becomes less of a thing.
0: Yeah. I do think that the kind of um, sanitisation of golf courses and this idea of trying to make them um, consistent in all areas in the pursuit of fairness, I guess, is just an absolute fool's errand, isn't it? Because, I mean, let alone bunkers at an open venue, you've got people who are whacking it into grandstands and getting drops in drop zones versus people who've actually found a thick bit of rough. You've got people who've hit it two fairways wide and ended up on a footpath. Like, there is just an element of chance, isn't there, that is completely unavoidable. I have to say that I think I'm right there with you on the bunker thing um, because they should be effectively half a shot penalty, shouldn't they? Um, so you should you should have the opportunity to get up and down. You sh- there should be an element of jeopardy as in you may well get a bad lie or you may well get up a face or some sort of funny stance because that's the risk you take. I mean, we've talked before on this podcast about should we return to not raking bunkers because... The, the lie is so good that there's there's almost there's um, unless you get a, um, a plug then there's almost no chance of a bad a bad lie um, in bunkers at, at premium venues and again that's that's something that it just removes them as being a hazard so yeah it's very 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 strange thing to do is that we don't we don't want to see tour pros suffer so we're going to soften the bunkers off it's a very odd decision.
1: I learned a load about how they rake bunkers. Just like there's a piece on our website National Club Golfer that you can have a look at, uh, which is how to rake bunkers open style. Um, and it, it was really interesting, like what they do and how they do it. And one of the things is that they want all of the rake marks to be in the same line. So they kind yeah. so if you're doing a green, so basically if you're on a, in your, if, if you're in a fairway bunker, all the rake lines have got to, have got to face down the line of the hole. And if you, um, you'd have to read the piece. So again, I'm doing this off the top of my head. But on a green side bunker, they want them facing the middle of the green. So they pick a point, and then they rake back to that point. And then obviously, all the lines are supposed to be vertical. So not like the shambles that we produce on a Saturday, where it's just basically all higgledy piggledy all over the place. But you think, you know, that's that's the kind of um, level of consistency that they want in what is essentially a hazard. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's
0: yeah. Doesn't doesn't feel right, does it? Um, and it, I, I think you saw like the, the 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 Chipping area was right outside the media centre, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, they were all practicing funny stances and like odd lies in bunkers to try and prepare themselves for that. So I think it's just it's surely it's just part of the unique challenge of that particular venue, in it.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's what I think. You know, you 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 will know going into that competition at Hoylake that if you find the bunkers, you're going to be in a load of trouble. So don't find yeah. them.
0: It's interesting that Westwood's making that point about um, divots on Twitter. I mean, he makes a lot of points on Twitter, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, he did. I remember it just on the topic of fairness and Lee Westwood. I remember him whacking into one of those baskets at Merion once in the US Open. I bet he wasn't that into golf's not supposed to be fair at that particular moment.
1: So the context for that was, and we could, we could talk about this very briefly, the context for that was, while everyone was basically getting drenched at Hoylake, uh, on the other side of the world, there was the Barracuda Championship, and Patrick Rogers um, was in a playoff with... Um, oh, yeah. He was in a playoff, a uh, sudden death playoff, in fact, and his his drive landed in a in a fairway divot, and he could only sort of chunk out the approach and he lost the playoff. And obviously, whenever anything like this happens, the old shouldn't-you-get-relief from a divot in a fairway comes up again. And um, there was some sort of mixed responses about it. I mean, obviously, largely speaking, your average club golfer is massively in favour of this. Or those who are in favour of it are massively in favour of it. They're not one way or the other. There's no ambivalence about it. Um, but some of the i think mean, westwood was point as was, as i said earlier was just said golf is not fair and that's yeah, why i keep saying about it we've done this we've to done death this. but well, we've do,
0: just... we've done it and we did it in golfs room 101
1: where i think i said
0: people who think you should be able to take relief from a fairway divot should be in golfs room <laughs> room 101 it's up like, it's like it's it is really it's like a non golfer's opinion basically it would be my view on it because it's just, it's just something that happens. How on earth do you distinguish between what's a divot and what isn't? Um, to use your phrase, it's just a cheats charter, isn't it, where people just say all the time, I'm in a divot, I'm going
1: to move it. Well, well, let's say, right, that you get a golf course where there's a landing area where lots of balls settle and where there is lots of divots, and then your ball ends up in a divot. Try finding your nearest point of complete relief in that. There's no closer to the hole, you know. You're probably going to end up on a slope. Is that fair?
0: It's pra- practically unenforceable. Yeah, let's move on. We're just going to get riled. So the the other thing that was uh, a thing last week at Hoylake was internal out of bounds, another thing that triggers people, isn't it?
1: It very much does, doesn't it? Although some people were saying to me there isn't internal out of bounds at all at Hoylake. Um, so I'm about to become a hypocrite by talking about stroke and distance after saying that right. golf is not fair, and now I'm going to talk about something where Golf wait a minute,
0: wait a minute, wait a minute, unfair. wait a minute, wait a minute. Who was saying that the, the out of bounds of is not internal?
1: Oh, someone on Twitter or Facebook, one or the two, was saying to me it's not an internal out of bounds because it's the practice ground forms, essentially, part of the course. My view is, and it seemed to be shared by a lot of people, is the practice ground is inside the boundary of the course. Therefore, if it's out of bounds, it's internal out of bounds. But anyway, it's semantics. Everyone called it internal out of bounds all week.
0: Well... I think, I don't know who that was on Twitter, but they sort of got a
1: point, have they? Like, so
0: there's a the the 14th at Formby, I think, has got a, runs alongside the practice area and the out-of-bounds is, that is out-of-bounds as well. And that never feels like internal out-of-bounds as, it, as it's described at Hoyle. I mean, it is very internal to the golf course. That is a thing. It couldn't be more internal if it tried. Um, Do you know, do you know Joe McDowell? Donald, is it, who does those amazing illustrations?
1: I, I don't know him personally. I am aware of his work.
0: Big friends with your friend, Sam Cooper. I went to Sam Cooper's drinks at the Sounder House on a Wednesday night. I now, was doing really, work. That really was a hotbed of woke golf. It's unbelievable.
1: There it a trestle yeah. sticks everywhere and kind of like yeah, canvas were. bags.
0: There was people drinking rosé, which was a thing. Like it was normal. Uh, there was architects there. It was just incredible. Sounds like the anyway, kind of gaff
1: I would have enjoyed, actually.
0: Yeah. Uh, I got drunk with Frank Pont. Not many people can say that, can they?
1: No, they can't. Anyway,
0: so the uh, the he did this really cool um, sort of spoof drawing that you must have seen on Twitter where he'd changed the internal out bounds at Hoylake into a pond. I did see it, yeah. Uh, which I thought was kind of quite illustrative and kind of, well, it was literally illustrative um, but also kind of like quite debate generating and it's kind of salient to the point you want to make, isn't
1: it? Well, I may now rewrite some of my piece to include that drawing because that actually completely sums up the point I'm about to make about stroke and distance and balls Can we just that are say, lost we ought inside the inside scene. boundary. We ought to
0: set the scene a little bit here, isn't it? Because we are sh- assuming that people know what the hell we're going on about. So at Hoylake, there are three holes that border what is normally the club's practice area, and they are Open 3rd, Open 18, and Open 16. Correct. Well and done. They kind, of go, they kind of lap the practice area in a loop. So you've out of bounds all the way down the right of Open 3rd, all the way down the right of Open 16, and all the way down the right of Open 18. And it's a funny thing to witness in reality because there's kind of the out of bounds stakes then there's kind of an area of like no man's land the sort of area where you might have a armistice day game of football and then the kind of like hospitality tents and the, the spectators are so it's quite an odd thing isn't it like as in that gap is pretty weird to look at
1: yeah and I, I, on 18 that boundary was moved somewhat because the T was moved as well. So I think they put the T 60 yards back and right, I think, which allowed them to move the boundary of out of bounds, the internal boundary of out of bounds, 18, I think about 20 yards left, which is why you got that big no man's land, as you put it, um, between the boundary and, um, and, and the grandstands or the hospitality. And they did, um, I don't know if they normally do this. I've only played Hoylake once before, but they did kind of really rough up the area around the out-of-bounds boundary as well. I mean, you know, if you if your ball was going, like running into it, I don't think it was going to go out of bounds. It would end up in some thick fescue and you might not find it. And that happened to a couple of players, but, you know, to get the ball out of bounds, you actually had to bounce because uh, the fescue was about sort of a foot and a half, two two feet high and it was pretty thick.
0: Yeah, it is also worth saying that it is always out of bounds. So it's out Mm. of bounds for the club members. Yeah. Um, Whereas there are some internal out of bounds at open venues that are put in for the week. So they put one in on the right of the ninth at Birkdale to stop players whacking it up the 10th fairway off that tee, for example. And I'm pretty sure that the out of bounds that Rory uh, suffered with at Port Rush is not normally part of the course. I think that's just in for open week as
1: well. Yeah, I'd have Could to check. That. But it was on both yeah. sides, wasn't it? On Port Rush, yeah. I think. And it was... Pr- I mean, you didn't have to hit a big hook off one yeah. to, to get so out is, of bounds.
0: This is like an integral part of the golf course. The third normally plays as the first for Hoylake members. It's one of the most intimidating uh, golf shots, opening golf tee shots in golf, where you tippy-toe it up the left-hand side, thus making your second shot harder. Um, I don't have a problem with it. Your, your point, I think, is that you think that stroke and distance is kind of double jeopardy, don't you? I,
1: I do, but in a particular circumstance. Um, so I I do think that for, for golf balls that fail to remain within the boundaries of the course, then there should be a stroke and distance penalty. I mean, you know, it's a principal tenant of golf, I think to, or certainly of modern golf anyway, where boundaries are more, are more confirmed to keep your ball within the boundary. I think if you, hit your ball off the planet and it goes miles out over the fence then, then there should be a decent punishment for that where I get where I'm a bit more conflicted is about a ball lost inbounds say for example you hit your ball into the middle of a fairway over a hill you get over the hill you can't find it or you hit it into a first cut of rough um, you, you see where it lands but you get there and for whatever reason you can't find it it happens all the time doesn't it Should the penalty for that situation then also be stroke and distance? Now, people think that stroke and distance is set, that it's always been in place. And it has been around since the earliest formations of the rules. We're going back sort of nearly 300 years. But the people who've done rules of golf over those centuries have treated stroke and distance in very different ways. Sometimes it's been stroke sometimes it's been distance sometimes it's been both um, there are there have been periods in golf history where stroke and distance was not the penalty you received for either a lost ball or out of bounds ball uh, and this argument went on for for a long long time I was come I came across um, I was I, I'm a student of golf history so I like old golf books I was looking at a website find golf books and they have a report of 1948, the R A report, for some reason, they they started to push out an annual report to tell people outside of their sort of membership what was going on in the world of golf. And one of the parts of that was a report from the Rules Committee, and this was in 1948. And even then, they're still arguing about stroke and distance there's a there's a passage I'd like to read to you where it said that um, the committee were unable to agree on the penalty for a ball out of bounds. it wrote they were all agreed that the penalty for lost ball unplayable ball and ball out of bounds should be uniform but they were equally divided as to the nature of this penalty. So they decided to take a referendum of the members of the club as to whether it should be, quote, loss of stroke and distance as under the present rule or lot of di- loss of distance only. And as like late as the late 1960s, the USGA had a local rule in place for, that clubs could bring in that permitted a ball to be dropped within two club lengths of the place where it last crossed the boundary line with a penalty of one stroke. So the way that we've treated a ball lost and a ball out of bounds, and the stroke and distance penalty has really varied over, over the years. And what I'm the, the nub of my argument in, in, a, in this long winded way that I've presented it is if you know, if, if it's known or virtually certain that your ball is lost within the boundaries of the golf course, what difference is there? between that situation and hitting your ball into a penalty area where the same provision applies. So to take penalty area relief, you have to know or be virtually certain that your ball is lost in a penalty area. So why in that particular circumstance is the penalty different? Why is it stroke and distance for a lost ball? Why is it penalty area relief, one stroke, but no loss of distance for a ball, for a ball in a penalty area. Both balls are still lost, aren't they? You both know that they're lost.
0: Yeah, so I can, I agree with you on the inconsistency point. I think what I think is that it's it's the other way around that's wrong. Go ahead. So, well, so just, it's easy to talk about these things in real life examples, isn't it? So at Old Woodley, how many times does that get said on this podcast? Mm. On the 13th, there's this weird little pond. Um, it's basically the only bit of water on the course. Um and it's a lateral. All water hazards are lateral now, aren't they?
1: No, some can some can be just some are yellow still. I thought they got rid of that the, idea. No, the the RNA recommendation is for all penalty areas to be red, but, but some are yellow. Yeah, you know, like for example, where there's a where it forms a challenge, intrinsic challenge of the hole. Say, for example, you've got short par three where you have to hit a ball over water, it lands oh, yeah. on the other side and it rolls back in. You don't necessarily want that to be red, do you? You want the player to, Accomplish the challenge of hitting over the water
0: yeah we digress again not for the mm. first time so anyway this pond as far as i can remember is a red is red stakes right
1: i know which one you're talking about
0: yeah so if you snap up your ball off that tee and your playing partners agree that it's in the pond you then dropping two club blanks from the
1: line it went in and off you go no you're not or whatever you're doing, like whatever you do, a you've,
0: drop, got an, uh, you've got to, you've
1: got to, you've got, you've got to know or be virtually certain the ball's gone in the penalty area. You Can't just agree it amongst yourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, all right, but that, the, sorry, it's semantics. So you, you and your <laughs> playing partners know or you're virtually certain the ball's going in the freaking pond. Fine. So you, you take your penalty drop and you proceed. Um, where I find it unfair is that you could hit a slightly better shot that was straighter, that would. Gets mangled up in the heather that you can't find, uh, and or you could have the similar that basically the same shot that you can't agree or be virtually certain has gone in the pond, um, and it's short of the of the staked area. And again, you then back into stroke and distance. Yeah, I just think that in a, any circumstance that ball's lost, and it's totally irrelevant whether it's in a pond or it's in a bit of heather or it's in a bush. So you back. I think you should be back to the tee regardless. So I do think I completely agree with you, you on the inconsistency of your of it because yeah for that exact for that exact reason I just think if you start saying oh we can all agree that the ball was broadly in there um, then again it's just it's just giving the player far too much latitude it's like if a ball's lost it's lost
1: yeah so that's not what I'm saying I'm saying that you should the n- n- nub of my argument is that you should expand the definition of known or virtually certain right so no one are virtually certain at the moment can only be used um if for a ball that is in a penalty area or whether the ball has moved and who caused it to move that's the only usually the only way in which it's i think there's something around ball lost in an abnormal course condition as well where you can use it but generally speaking they're the only times you can use it if you expanded that to say if it's known no, or virtually certain that a ball is lost in within bounds, within the confines of the course, um, then you could actually change this rule slightly and and bring it into par with penalty areas. I don't think I'm explaining this very well.
0: No, but, you know you are you, but, are, you are, you are, you are, you but, are. But in,
1: unplayable balls is another example of this. So, you know, I see my ball go into a bush. It is known no, or virtually certain that ball is in a bush. But if I can't find that ball, I can't take unplayable ball relief because i yeah, have to like, i have to use the spot of the ball as the as the point from which to take relief from well like how is that how is it any different how is that any different to a ball in a penalty area i know the ball is in the bush i saw it go in there
0: yeah so i think um the the stroke and distance thing i said at the start of this that i think it's double jeopardy because yeah. like and it takes freaking ages and you get into this point about provisional balls which we can talk about I guess. So the RNA, when they kind of did their recent rules update, they did say that they would make available to clubs, this idea of a model lo- local rule that instead of stroke and distance, you could just go find the ball, the place where the ball went out of bounds or was lost and then drop on the fairway for a penalty up uh, at the nearest point um, yeah. on the playing area for two shot penalty. Right.
1: Yeah. And, Con- and Kongu got upset about that because um presumably i think because there was that element of dropping the ball on the fairway and i I do think that the local rule overreached there a little bit because you could have you could have an example where the ball was miles left for example um and was lost and yet you could and you could take that ball to the edge of the fairway a, a potentially huge distance and i and, and I wrote at the time that I thought that the, that Kongu were right to try and rein in that local rule for qualifying competitions, as they called them then, and supplementary scores, because I did think there was a huge opportunity to abuse it um, from yeah. those who wanted to. Now, that raises another question. I'm, we're going to talk about this on another podcast about whether actually when we're developing rules and we're developing ways to develop golf, we worry too much about people who might bend the rules. I do think there's there's a case of that, and we'll talk about that in another podcast. But the principle of the local rule itself, I actually think in this circumstance is quite sound. But what you do is you establish a relief area that doesn't involve the fairway. So let's say, for example, I hook my ball well left. Um, I see the point at which I see the last estimated point at which. It is lost. I've got an idea of where it is lost, but I can't find it. What if then you were to say to the player, right, well, you can take stroke and distance relief, so you can play again off the tee, or you can use the last point at which you thought your ball was lost. I've not explained that very well. And then use the same kind of relief area opportunities with a penalty shot that you would in a penalty area situation so back on the line of relief for example lateral relief two club lengths with which to drop from the point where you think that the ball was lost so you're not taking it out to the fairway giving yourself a nice line dropping it you're basically going to be dropping it in the rubbish probably in most 99.9% of cases there is going to be and there is going to be a case isn't there where someone is like in the first cut and two club lengths for example if they went lateral did get them onto the fairway but in the majority of cases you're still going to be dropping in some cabbage but you're able to move the game forward instead of having to walk back to the tee these are prototype ideas so i mean i'm not not suggesting this is the finished article but but there is that
0: there is like sense at the at the center of it in that like so just to go back to the point i was making there's just too many rules like why do we need one rule for water and another rule for out of bounds or another rule for lost ball I, i completely agree with the sentiment of it it should just be if my ball's lost how do i deal with it this is the rule right so whether that is everything is stroke and distance or everything isn't stroke and distance i think is kind of like fine whichever way you want to fall the problem with um everything being a drop rather than stroke and distance is where do you drop it, as you're trying to describe. So in an example where you've hit it into um, a sort of swathe of heather, which everyone everyone can see, you and your playing partners could agree a broad point in that heather where they think your ball was, and you could drop one there and hit it out of the heather under one-shot penalty, right? Yeah. No problem. If you carve it miles into some woods that's not out of bounds, how on earth do you agree a spot to drop that?
1: Well, you use the last estimated point in the same way that you would. Lose, you you do that for a penalty area, so it's the, it's well, the, the point last at which
0: it went into the woods.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I'm not. I'm not mm. saying it's perfect. I mean, you'd need to. you need to think about it. But I'm saying it's what I'm saying is it's worth discussion, isn't it?
0: It is worth discussion. I totally agree with the bush thing. Like, if you've watched the ball go into a gorse bush, then you can't find it because the gorse bush is prickly. It's stupid. You should just be able to drop it by the bush, shouldn't you? <laughs> A hundred percent agree with that on that point. I've I've noticed increasingly. Um, I think I said this the other day when we we're prepping for this. Um, I played Chart Hills uh, before the Open at St George's in whatever that was, twenty twenty one, um, and the course was only just reopened, so they got there, there was no rough management whatsoever. So they'd lateraled all the rough. So if mm. you went in like past the semi, you just got to drop out because it was just like absolutely. as you like um same thing happened when i played at golf course called the grand in uh, california earlier this year where loads and loads of the um bushes were um lateraled, which i think was just a sort of sensible kind of pace of play thing um see i definitely think you're on something with that is that it 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 just needs simplifying as in there's too many there's, there's there's two two different treatments of a lost ball which seems a bit stupid
1: and there are challenges to this, as you point out. You know, you, you use the big bunch of trees as an example. That is an example of a challenge because what, you would, what people would want to do is they'd want to drop it on the edge of the trees into the rough. Well, I mean, last estimated point doesn't necessarily mean you can come out as far as you want. If the ball's gone deep in there, you go deep in there and you estimate a point. You don't then come to the edge and go, right, I'll just drop it. If the ball's in the trees, it's in the trees. Uh, But my my main reason for this, my main reason for thinking about this, at least as as a discussion point is the one thing I've noticed um, in the last few years is the game has definitely slowed up. You know, like I, I used to rush around in three and a quarter hours for a medal. Now I very rarely get out in four and they're in three balls and my course in particular, where there's quite a lot of trees, um, there are some areas of rough that are being grown up now, and if you get off the beaten track, it can get it can get a bit tasty. Um, there are, And it's a tight course as well. There are many opportunities for the game to be slowed up and it's not slowed up by people playing necessarily slowly. It's slowed up by, oh, I thought I would find that ball but now I've got to go back to the tee or I've spent three minutes looking for a ball that I know I can't really find but I've got to try and look for it because I've got no other option. If I don't spend the entire three minutes, I've got to walk back to the tee again. Whereas I think if, if you had that option to treat it almost like a penalty area, I think people would spend a way less time searching for their golf ball. They would just go, yeah. off, I've, I've lost that. Penalty stroke, drop, get on with yeah. the game.
0: Couldn't agree more because I mean, part no. of it is just the walk back, isn't it?
1: Now, people will say, as, as you pointed out, I think, much earlier in this de- debate, people will say, you're dumbing the game down. You're dumbing the game down. You're trying to make it easier for the people. And that is the reason I wanted to give the historical context for this because this has not been set through history it has been various uh, iterations of stroke or distance or stroke and distance on how we deal with out of bounds and how we deal with with lost balls so if golf's governing bodies were unable to settle on the definitive version of this until 1968 for example then that doesn't mean that they can't look at it again you know we're not dealing with 300 years of history all right stroke and distance was there right in 1744 or whenever it was but it's altered through the years and if and if you've been able to look at it before then surely you can look at it again and i think alternative to stroke and distance actually isn't a bad idea it's just that it, I think it was felt to be too lenient. And even the two strokes that you were being able, you, you were having to be put on to utilise that rule. I think there were certain examples where uh, some, some people in authority were saying, well, say you're a plus handicap player who can hit the ball a mile, right? You've carved your tee shot out of, you shot out of bounds. Um, you can drop at the last estimated point on the fairway, like on the edge of the fairway. I'm hitting my third shot. I can still get par there. Um, so is that a punishment? Well, uh, possibly, but you are talking about 0.001% of players. Here. Yeah,
0: and, and it's the same for everyone, is also the point. Um, I guess counter to that is it kind of does – I've sort of got some experience of this on in, in my own golf trips is that we decided we were going to have a bush drop rule. So when we were playing in our sort of bounce games, we said, right, we're going to just have a bush drop. So if you're in a bush, you can just drop it out, treat it like a lateral have to say it did grind my gears a bit because it does it it kind of it negates the benefit of your straight hitting because you're we were like doing one shot so you're you both at the same distance one person's in a bush and dropped it out they're now playing three you're playing two that you can catch that up quite easily on a second shot can't you
1: and i suppose if your handicaps are higher um there's more opportunity and more breadth for you to do that but then you can but then you can think about the penalty i mean the the two shot penalty for example on the alternative to um stroke and distance local rule you, you could have that as the penalty and i'm not necessarily saying it has to be one shot you could say right you can go back and take stroke and distance or you can drop at your last estimated point where you think it is with a two shot penalty and play four from that area I, I, yeah. I don't think, like I said, I don't think the general principle of the rule was what bothered people at Congo. It was the edge of the fairway that bothered people. I might ask
0: them. Yeah, It's a good, it's a really interesting debate, actually. It'd be, it'd be really interesting to hear what people say. Just to finish off, like you, you've written about that Thomas Peters thing that I saw at the open. God, that was weird.
1: Uh, where he failed to say that he was hitting a provisional
0: ball twice. But, I mean, that is bonkers, isn't it?
1: You gave us a bit of a scoop there because no Mm. one else had it because no one else had seen it because it wasn't on television. So no one in the media centre was watching it. It just happened to be you and however many people around the 18th all watching Thomas Peters basically ignore his provisional. So the first one, this is a really interesting story. It is worth watching because it is worth reading on our website because it shows that even professional golfers mess it up. So what had happened was he hit the ball way left on the 8th to start with he says that an official thought the ball was out of bounds. Um, so he's then gone back to the tee, put another one into play, and what's actually happened is the ball was in bounds, but it was in bounds way further on than any of them thought it was. So if he basically hit a provisional at the time, he could have actually hit his provisional and then found his other ball, and it would have been it would have been okay as long as you're not playing. The provisional from yeah, where you yeah. from further on from where you think the original ball was, um, so he's messed up, he's messed that up once because he's not taken the decision himself. He's like relied on other people to do it. And then on the eighteenth, his second shot, um, he's hit it close to the right out of bounds boundary, I think. And yeah, he's exactly just right, yeah. and he's just assumed it's out of bounds, I think. And he's just popped one down, hasn't declared it a provisional, has played it, and then they've got to the point where he's. Original second was and there's the ball in bounds and it was, a, um,
0: it was a very peculiar thing to see Steve because the way where he'd hit it was literally three feet over the spectator walkway and about three feet in bounds but it was sat up like an absolute cherry so you could see it from the other side of the fairway so he must have been able to see it from 150 yards away walking up and he didn't even go over to it he walked straight to his not provisional to the ball that was in play and just carried on and then he basically one handed his wedge. Like somewhere near the green, and that was the end of that.
1: I mean, so I, that... I can't, I, I can't speak for Thomas Peters. Um, I'd have to ask him, but I mean, I think he was he was on for quite a high round at that point, and there may have all there may have also been a bit of, let's just get in the house.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. Why, why do we have to say provisional? It's one of the fussiest things.
1: It's very easy. You just say it's a provisional ball.
0: Yeah, I just don't get it.
1: Anyway, I'm going to have to go.
0: I've got football coaching. That was amazing, Steve. That was like um, it was like we hadn't spoken for like three weeks or something.
1: It's because apart from half an hour in the media centre, Lake, we haven't. I mean, I, I was
0: being deeply ironic there. I feel like I've done nothing but speak to you for the last
1: three oh, weeks. I mean, what I would say is to people, um, this, on Struck and Distance, it's an idea. Like, I'm not wedded to it. Um, I just think the rules of golf are are, are always kind of um, enhanced um, when we talk about them and try and understand the reasons behind them and try and consider um, other things. So so don't abuse me on social media for God's sake, but I I do want to hear your views on it. um, And it'd be really good if you subscribe to our podcast and if you added me on Twitter at Steve Carroll NCG and told me everything you think about stroke and distance and whether I'm onto something or whether I'm a complete idiot.
0: I don't think anyone's going to think you're a complete idiot Steve you couched it so many times I thought it was a really good debate well done you haven't
1: seen Facebook
0: I'm looking forward to playing golf on Saturday it's going to be good I will speak to you next week
1: cheers Tom see you soon